So it's not enough to only identify the right investor. You also have to identify the right investor at the right time. And so a few points that we've learned and that were made salient on our clubhouse discussions are there is no silver bullet because it's not, like I said, it's not enough to just identify the right investor. You have to find them at the right time. Um, you also, when you do this outreach, and this is where getting away from those lists of a thousand investors, taking your copy and paste email and sending it a thousand different times and hoping for the best, you know, it's like gambling and, and you know, throwing it on red or black at a casino. You might get something back, but it would be luck and happenstance. Um, these investors want to know that when you reach out, that you've done your homework and there's a reason for why you're reaching out. You know their investment philosophy. You know that they invest in that style of technology because reaching out to an investor who only invests in growth stage capital and you're looking for a $10 million Series A, it's very clear that you haven't understood what their philosophy is or looked at their portfolio of investments or the size of the investments that they have made. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey there, Scott. In this episode of MedSider Radio, we caught up with Giovanni Loricella and Aaron Green to discuss all things related to fundraising for early stage medical device startups. In this interview, we learn about the ins and outs of raising medtech capital, what investors want to see in a medical device startup, and best practices for pitching potential partners, among other things. But first, here's a bit more about their backgrounds. Giovanni Loricella holds a bachelor's in finance and master's in regulatory affairs in medical devices, biologics, and pharmaceuticals, a Harvard University certificate for advanced negotiation strategy, and a Universa Tabuchani, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correct, <laughs> Uh, certificate for private equity and venture capital. He has more than a decade of experience partnering with startups, SMEs, boards of directors, and investors on structuring technical and commercial teams from the C-level to individual contributors. Giovanni and his team have hired more than 7,000 employees for over 500 startups in more than 40 countries and assisted in facilitating capital raises for startups that amount to more than $150 million. All right, on the other side of the table is Aaron Green, who has a PhD in computational chemistry from UCLA. In 2014, he became the first hire at Neural Analytics, which is now NovaSignal, where he held leadership roles spanning clinical, finance, sales, and marketing. Aaron currently runs US operations for LabNostic, a global interoperability platform for clinical laboratories. He co-founded MedTech Money with Giovanni in 2020 and also founded ExtractX, a botanical extraction startup in 2021. Okay, so before we jump into the discussion, I want to mention a few things. First, since you're listening to MedSider, you're probably aware of how expensive it is to run clinical trials. Anyone who spent time in the medtech space knows that you typically need to commit hundreds of thousands of dollars, oftentimes millions, towards clinical research. But it doesn't have to be that way, and here's why. Proofpilot is a new kind of hybrid clinical trial platform that enables you to run decentralized studies at costs that are 40 to 80% below traditional approaches. This is how they do it. First, you can easily design a trial in the Proofpilot Visual Protocol Designer using their extensive library of templates. Next, you can launch those trials to participants and virtual staff without any technical development. Skip the integration of disconnected providers because Proofpilot pulls it all together seamlessly. For example, you can recruit, consent, and retain participants, then schedule, remind, and collect data, often with minimal manual labor, 
manage site data in real time, query adverse events quickly, and review data and preliminary analysis within hours, all in one compliant platform. Get up and running quickly with an annual license fee and launch as many trials as you like with an unlimited number of participants. To get started, visit medsiderradio.com forward slash proofpilot. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash proofpilot. For the Medsider audience, with an annual contract, Proofpilot will provide IRB approval for your first study at no cost. Some exclusions apply, so visit medsiderradio.com forward slash proofpilot to learn more. Okay, second, if you're into learning from proven medtech leaders and want to know when the new content and interviews go live, head over to medsider.com and sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get access to gated articles and lots of other interesting healthcare content. If you want even more inside info from medtech experts, think about a Medsider premium membership. We talk to experienced healthcare leaders about the nuts and bolts of running a business and bringing products to market. This is your place for valuable knowledge on specific topics like seed funding, prototyping, insurance reimbursement, and positioning a medtech startup for an exit. In addition to the entire back catalog of Medsider interviews over the past decade, premium members get exclusive Ask Me Anything interviews and masterclasses with some of the world's most successful medtech founders and executives. Since making the premium memberships available, I've been pleasantly surprised at how many people have signed up. So if you're interested, go to medsider.com to learn more. All right, without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right, Giovanni, Aaron, welcome to uh, Medsider Radio. Appreciate you uh, you coming on this morning. Thank you for thank having you. us. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, now looking forward to this conversation. It's going to be uh, like we like we chatted about, kind of in the in the uh, the old green room before I hit the record button. Uh, almost a, a bit of a, a a highlight, right, of the medtech money shows that you've been doing on Clubhouse over the past uh, past few months, uh, which uh, will certainly um, provide more information for uh, for the MedSider listeners about your your program. But without further, uh, before we go too deep, I should say, I provided a, um, a bio, like a rough, you know, high level bio for both of you guys um, at the outset of this interview, um, but would love for you guys to add a little bit of color in terms of your your background. So um, Giovanni or Aaron, I'm not sure who, who wants to go first here, but can you can you provide a little bit more information about kind of your background? Yeah, I'll go first. Um, yeah, so my background, computational chemistry PhD was going the academic route. Um, Decided that wasn't for me. Um, so I was doing a postdoc at UCLA and uh, had been, you know, gung ho on becoming a professor. Got into a, a lab where there were 40 postdocs, and my the postdoc I was working under at the time had like 40 publications and was still uh, having a, a tough time finding a job. So I thought, you know, it's it's not the the, the next seven years. This isn't exactly what I want to be doing. So I, I took where I was, basically a glorified chef and accountant, and translated that over to uh, to a startup, which is what I, I really wanted to do. Uh, the startup was called Neural Analytics at the time. I was the first hire there. Uh, it's an LA-based startup working in um, digital autonomous robotics for ultrasound. So I, as the first hire there, I was uh, kind of the, the spearhead for a lot of uh, strategic initiatives. I started off in clinical partnerships and then moved on to closing out the, the Series A and Series B rounds. Well, actually, I, I closed out the, the seed to Series A bridge and then Series A to B left um, over to go to um, International, built up the European office for a couple of years and then moved back to demarketing for the, the product launch of the robotic system. Uh, so I was with the company for about six, seven years. Um, 
and then in 2019, uh, broke off and uh, started my uh, medtech consulting practice, where I work primarily with early stage startups and tech transfer, and a number of, of accelerators. Uh, so that's that's me. I'll pass it off to Gio. Thanks, Aaron. So I've spent the past ten plus years in medtech. Uh, I work with a firm that focuses on talent acquisition, and we work with both the startups directly as well as venture capitalists or the investors to build out their CEOs or their change management within their investment portfolios. And on the actual startup side, which is all that we work with, med tech startups, we build their teams from C-level down to entry level, and then very early stage R&D all the way through global commercialization. When I was brought on, the first task was to take us outside the United States and truly make us a, a global firm to give assets and uh, abilities to build teams for a single company on a global scale. So we're going through a regulatory shift right now where the EU MDRs are coming into place within the next seven days now. And over the past couple of years, we've seen a dynamic shift where previous to those two years, most startups would pursue CE Mark first. And now it's being flipped where they're pursuing FDA first. But um, we used to build companies and build long-term relationships with them here in the States. And when they would ask us to go build European teams for either a CE Mark trial or uh, after receiving CE Mark, their actual field team, we wanted to be able to provide that ability and give that service to the clients that we had here in the States. And then through compounding networking, we ended up starting having European clients and Israeli clients and Chinese clients and Australian clients. And then it's pretty much a running joke that the only place that we haven't made hires or built teams yet is in Antarctica. So that's, that's <laughs> a running joke. So we're, we're fully a global firm that focuses on building med tech startup teams. We do have a large uh, investor relationship on either doing a talent assessment for the companies that they're about to invest in, or once again, putting in their CEO and executive management. I got my master's in regulatory affairs shortly after joining the firm, and that was uh, both, well, I should say all three in pharmaceuticals, biologics, and medical devices, and I tended to focus in medical devices given our clientele and, and also where my passion lies. I, I truly do think I'm a med tech guy first, and then whatever I do also after that comes secondary. Love the med tech industry, and at this point especially over the COVID period, I used to make, and even pre-COVID, I used to make uh, introductions between startups that were raising capital into investors, but it was incredibly passive and very few and far between. But over the past year, given the, the pandemic of how recruitment, if you will, or, or building teams was somewhat put on a standstill for March, April, and May, and fortunately came back on in June, 2020, and it's been white hot ever since, um, took that opportunity to pivot very strongly and then go really deep into my investor network and provide that to the startups who are raising capital. And over the past now 14 months have made well over 700 introductions and fortunately it helped raise over 75 million for about 40 different companies. So it's been uh, a cool journey and being able to understand how and the trials and tribulations of what startups have to go through uh, in terms of raising capital and, and then how that plays onto their business um, has been enlightening for me, and I've gone much deeper into it than I ever have been before. So 10 years as a consultant, building medtech startups, and now actively working with investors and startups to provide both assets on the people side as well as the money side. Got it. Uh, thanks. 
Thanks for that background, guys. Um, and Aaron, I didn't realize that you were headed down the professor uh, the professor path. You know, I know I know Giovanni, you're known as kind of Mr. MedTech, and Aaron, I'm, I might just call you Professor Green from now on. Yeah, you know? <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> no, uh, j- joking aside, um, we're this conversation is going to be all about like raising uh, you know money for uh, for MedTech startups. So, with that said, and you know, kind of based on the the bio that you you just provided, Giovanni. Tell us a little bit more about what you're doing with MedTech Money, and then we'll jump right into kind of the, the substance of this uh, this discussion. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to start here, uh, just sure. the, the genesis of MedTech Money, picking up where uh, Giovanni left off in the early sort of phases of the pandemic. Gio and I had been in touch uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, I knew uh, Giovanni uh, through his work at, at the Mullings Group, and we'd actually retained Joe for uh, uh, services in the past at my previous company. But I, I'd never met Giovanni in person. He's, he's uh, a figure on, on LinkedIn that uh, had always been in my feed and I'd, I'd never reached out. And I had had, the, had an opportunity to uh, notice a, a post that he was posting with his group on, on investors and lead lists. And I wanted to um, couple that with some of the the ideas that were coming out of um, the SaaS community, uh, particularly like Dan Martell, and uh, just reached out and you know said, hey, you know, I think there's uh, I think there's an opportunity here to to boost these posts uh, using some, or translating some of the uh, the the tech uh, approach in, on LinkedIn over to MedTech, where it just it hasn't been uh, seen. So we started our our MedTech money journey there. Yeah, it was it was the power of network the power of networking that I definitely have to attribute to the start of the pandemic. And so that, that is how Aaron and I met. And when we connected, it was a strong connection that fortunately led to where we are today and got a chance to meet him in person in LA, which was awesome. And then have been building concepts and websites and networking ever since. And we've been coming up with this idea of just giving, giving, giving back to this entrepreneurial community who is raising capital and along the way seriously got to look underneath the hood of what does it mean to be either a very early stage entrepreneur raising capital possibly for the second or third time but typically for the first time and we noticed that there was this massive gap of these early stage entrepreneurs and simply not knowing what to do or where to go um, and just helping provide them insights and direction and leads um, that they could reach out to. And it spiraled into something that we didn't really expect. And and I can say, and I believe Aaron would back me up on this one, where we've learned so much over the past year and made so many more connections, both on the entrepreneurial side, as well as the investor side, that by sharing and getting called crazy over the past year for giving away information that most people pay thousands of dollars for um, has just given us the insight that we honestly weren't expecting. And it's taken us from being able to now provide strong counsel on executive summaries and and assembling those and and what's the best approach to reaching out to investors and how to do that. And what does your pitch deck look like? How can you optimize it? And then I would say even more importantly is saving time for entrepreneurs, not reaching out to investors, but reaching out to the right investors. And that's really opened up a lot of doors for us on getting in front of investors who then walk us through the mechanics of their theory or the philosophy of how they invest, where they are within their funds, the timing of their funds, what do they look at and why? And then creating this network of investors 
and categorizing them, if you will, so that when we deal with entrepreneurs, we can actually steer them in the right direction of reaching out for the first time and having warm introductions to these investors that, once again, 14 months later, has proven strong in actually getting investments to the entrepreneurs who first reach out to us. So it's been really great, which has also also led us to jumping on this clubhouse uh, platform that's been highly active for more than a few months, handful of months. I know it's been around longer than that, but uh, what Aaron and I have done is really provide this curated once a week conversation on Clubhouse that the intention is bringing investors as well as entrepreneurs who are raising capital onto a panel and demystifying what it means to raise capital as well as invest specifically within the med tech industry. And we've learned a lot along the way from the watchouts, the war stories, to even more hyper-specific assets like CRMs and when to use lawyers, et cetera. So it, it's provided us a really great opportunity to get in front of the entrepreneurial community from both a CEO or company side, as well as investors, um, which has not only grown our network tremendously, but taught us along the way. Yeah, that, that's perfect. And just while we're on the on the topic of of these your, your clubhouse chats or your clubhouse panels, uh, for lack of a better description, those are every Thursday at eight a.m. Pacific, correct? Correct. Eight a.m. Pacific, it. eleven o'clock Eastern. Got it. Um, well, hopefully that's helpful for those listening. I'll also link or provide information on the on the show notes to this episode for uh, for the MedTech Money uh, Clubhouse chats. But um, but those are great. Highly encourage anyone who's. Uh, Who's either um, you know making investments in early stage med tech companies, or uh, you know, or trying to trying to raise capital for for your own startup? Uh, to definitely uh, definitely check that out. So, and, I'll, and um, I'll just drop in real quick on that one, just to give some credibility and background to that, because there's there's three, basically there's three styles of panels that we've held so far. Our optimum blend is both entrepreneurs and investors on the panel, because what we love to do is throw out an objective question and hear the responses from both an entrepreneur and an investor and, and oftentimes how those um, dissonance and thoughts actually occur, right? Where an entrepreneur will look at something and think about it one way, an investor looks at the same thing and thinks about it a different way. And it's really good to highlight so that you can close that gap if you're an entrepreneur or even an investor trying to raise capital or invest for med tech. So that, that's the optimal one. But we also have had panels that are 100% investors, which have been great because we just get to really pepper all the investors with questions on what happens behind the scenes and what is the motivations of why investors turn down companies, move forward with companies, and what are their investors, or I should say motivations with their LPs. And a lot of those mechanics that entrepreneurs will never be aware of. So what's happening behind the scenes on the investor side? And then we've also had the third one would be 100% panels of, of entrepreneurs, where it's just a really great dialogue of what are the watchouts? What are some of the anecdotal stories that are great? Um, and also, I'm glad I never have to do that again, knowing that I've already been through it. And so our audience members really get a chance to hear what life happens from an entrepreneur or an investor side when you're dealing with raising or investing capital, which if you're raising capital specifically because our, our, our target audience is first-time entrepreneurs um, who just simply don't have the answers or don't know where to go, and being able to join a, a room to hear all this insight to at least help them move forward, and if not, even make connections along the way. So, yeah, that's helpful background. I love how, I love how you described the the first type of panel as the is the optimum blend. It almost sounded like a, a supplement, right? A medtech money supplement, you know, right. uh, <laughs> right. the optimum blend of uh, of 
of a panel. It's great. So with that said, let, we're going to spend the next uh, 45 minutes or so talking about really both sides of the table, right? So the investor side, as well as the kind of the startup founder side of the table. And before we dig into kind of the, the startup founder uh, side of the table, let's spend the first part of this discussion really talking about the investor, the, the, the flip side, because it's, it's most, I mean, if you're trying to raise capital, um, you need to understand your audience, right? Um, that's, that's crucial. And so um, let's let's spend the next you know twenty minutes ish or so something like that um, really talking about the different types of investors right from from angels to micro uh, micro VCs to late stage VCs etc. What do they want to see in an idea? How to make the right connections etc. And then we'll kind of dig into tips and best practices in terms of approaching those investors you know from the founder side of the table and and what uh, what your pitch deck should look like types of fundraising, um, uh, et cetera. So um, let's, let's first start out with, uh, uh, with the, type, the different types of investors that a startup founder should consider. Um, so who does, you know, Aaron or, or Giovanni, would, do you want to cover that? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just start off, you know, the typical fundraising journey for a company, they're looking super early stage at um, grants and uh, university funding to, to get a, an idea or a IP off the ground. That uh, can then translate into you know friends and family round, uh, then angels, angel groups, uh, micro VCs, early stage VCs, growth VCs. Um, so th- those are kind of the the menu of investors you can you have to choose from, and and really where you're at as a company depends on on who you're going to be talking to. I think each investor has their own uh, perspective and their own motivations going into their investment thesis uh, behind your company. I think, you know, for friends and family, it could be as, as simple as, you know, an, an impact investment where the folks understand your idea and, and believe in the impact that it could have, knowing that there's a, a high risk at an early stage. I think with, with angels, you're starting to see angels become uh, more sophisticated and uh, syndicating into into groups that are doing their own due diligence. And so the the... I think I think it's interesting that the tides are are kind of changing in the, the industry as a as a whole, where you start to see, um, particularly in, in like the deep tech side of medtech, where VCs are moving up around and l- less willing to take the early stage risk, and so the the founders are having to rely more on those grants, uh, friends of family, and and uh, and angels. Yeah, and, and with that said, I had a conversation with Derek Herrera, um, and who I think actually you 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 know fairly well, Aaron, from your from his time at. At oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love Derek. Yeah, oh, great, awesome guy. Like, um, not only a, a fantastic entrepreneur, but just a, a great human being. But uh, you know, we, we got into this conversation about um, when when it comes to raising money, thinking about um, different investors, kind of in parallel too, right? So if you're thinking about non-dilutive funding, like grant funds, as an example, knowing that that's going to take a few shots on goal, typically, especially if it's your first go round, that's going to take you know one or two, maybe three, three, four five submissions, maybe, uh, depending on the complexity of, of the grant request. And that's just going to take time. Maybe that's mm-hmm. a, a year, maybe that's two or three years, et cetera. And so thinking about moving that, that sort of opportunity along, but also, but also thinking about friends and family, maybe some early stage angel, angel money in, in, in parallel, knowing that the grant, the grant or the non-dilutive uh, funding is going to take some time. Yeah. Yeah. The grants, I mean, the grants are, they can be a double-edged sword, right? So you mm-hmm. have the grant, which is non-dilutive uh, funding, which is great. Uh, but then also attached to that comes, you know, you've got a, a project that you need to deliver on. And as an early stage company, you know, it's a moving target sometimes as, as to what market you're approaching and what 
how you're going to deliver on the uh, on the solution in terms of your technology. With a grant, you can sometimes uh, get yourself stuck into a position where um, your project manager doesn't allow you to uh, sort of change with the the market or with the times. Um, and so it can be a situation where you get yourself into a grant. The focus of your company has changed slightly, but the grant is is very uh, solid. And so you're, you're stuck executing on that while you're also trying to execute on this, this new market dynamic and new market opportunity that's presented itself. So I think, yeah, grant, grants are great uh, from a non-dilutive standpoint, but they come with drawbacks. There's also the administration of the grant as well, which, you know, you either need a, an accountant to, to help you with, or there is that the compliance burden that comes with it as well. So positives and, and negatives. Right, right, no doubt. And I want to do in the future. I want to do a you know a, a full episode on 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 grant uh, how to actually execute a a grant or what a grant submission looks like and and uh, kind of do a deep dive on that. But um, mm -hmm. you know, j just for any anyone that's listening that 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 feels like this is a, a bit of a scary topic, it, it definitely can be complex, right? Both on the submission side as well as on the on the on the on the on the post grant kind of compliance side, as as, uh, as Aaron mentioned. Um, but there are there are you know there are folks that can help you right whether individual consultants or even even agencies um, and as an example with uh, with Juve, um, we went through a, a grant submission process uh, about a year ago now and worked with a um, a company out of out of Minneapolis to help with that process and it, it definitely was a lot of work but they made it very very easy you know and I think I can't remember exactly how much money we threw out of it it was like five k or something for their support in that but it without a doubt helps streamline it so if you're listening to this and thinking about uh, you know a grant submission and think it's too big of a hill to climb just know that there are there are uh, agencies and and, uh, and consultants that can help uh, help streamline that that type of effort. And Scott, and just to give you a lead on that one, if you do ever do that show regarding grant writing, um, you might want to reach out to, and I can certainly introduce you, but Brian McLaughlin, who's the CEO of MicroLeads, we had, Aaron and I had him on Clubhouse a couple weeks ago, uh, specifically for him to talk about his grant writing. It's such a unique case, and he has a wealth of knowledge on what it means to start a company and then run a bunch of grants, and then now finally having to raise an equity round. But the unique case of raising 25 million in non-dilutive equity or non-dilutive wow. money. Um, and now for the first time having to go raise an equity round after already having 25 million invested in there. And his story is fascinating. So that's Brian McLaughlin, uh, CEO of MicroLeads. Okay, that's great. No, that, that, thanks for pointing that out. And that, that's incredible, 25 million in non-dilutive yeah. funding, that's insane. When, um, I, when I talked to him on that one, I was like, listen, I gotta have you on the show just to share your story as well. So he, he would be a strong asset for you. Oh yeah, that's incredible. And and, and I mentioned Derek um, Herrera. He he actually mentioned in that recent interview that I published that investors almost expect that you have uh, expect you to pursue you know grant funds. Maybe, maybe you know maybe it's a stretch to actually receive it, but it, it's almost an expectation that you're thinking at the very least thinking about it. So I just think that's a nice that was a good tip you know to just understand as an early stage founder, like don't don't just sort of kind of put that, put grant opportunities to the side, right? At least have a story to tell on why, if you're not going to pursue it, why, um, right? So, so anyway, that's a, that just wanted to cover that. So um, knowing kind of the, the life cycle sort of, so to speak of, uh, of, of early stage in, in investors, as, as you, uh, as you kind of called out, Aaron, let's talk about what they, what they typically want to see. And we don't have to break it down by maybe the type of investor, but generally speaking, what, what are your guys' uh, tips or best practices for things that they definitely want to see in, in an idea from an early stage MedTech founder? I'll take this one. So it's very simple, at least for me, on the early stage stuff, it's two points um, and doesn't really matter which order. 
there has to be a market for the technology. So if you're going after a super small market and you're looking after or you're looking for investment, it's typically going to fall flat uh, just because it's a passion project of the entrepreneur or founder doesn't mean it actually has legs to have an investment in there if the market's not big enough for a return. And we'll get into this later in the conversation, I'm sure. But you always have to keep in mind the motivations of an investor and the fact, especially if they're not an evergreen fund and they do have to eventually return that money to the limited partners who initially invested in their fund. Um, if that investment doesn't return, they're going to walk away. Even more so, and I don't want to say on the softer side, but a probably more brilliant uh, point that investors look at for early stage investments are the team. Um, if they don't believe, in, and this is probably the major differentiator between early stage investments and late stage investments, the earlier stage you are, the more it's about the team and the belief and trust that an investor has in that early stage entrepreneurial team. If they don't believe that you are responsible or have the capabilities of getting this over the line, they're not gonna invest in you because keep in mind, the business isn't there yet. And it's to be expected that the product is likely gonna change, there are gonna be pivots, there is gonna be time that's wasted or going off on tangents and having to recorrect the business. But if they don't believe that the team in place is the right team to grow and expand not only the company itself, but the product and the efficiency to eventually get it down the line or over the line, they're not gonna invest. Team is everything for early stage entrepreneurs. I don't want to say because people are obviously the most important in any company, but as the story continues to be built, as traction continues to be gained, as risk continues to be mitigated down the life cycle of a company, you then have more of an objective business where the clinical data or the revenue start to speak for itself, where it's less dependent on the entrepreneurs and the what ifs of the future of the company and much more dependent on is the clinical data speaking to the efficacy of the, te of the technology or is the revenue there and is the market already embracing the technology enough to spit back the revenue that is going to lead to an acquisition, lead to an IPO. So later stage investment is heavily more dependent on the objective business and the earlier stage you go, it's much more dependent on the trust and also the belief in the early stage entrepreneurs that are going to be along for the ride. Yeah, and I, I just add there. It's not just the CEO that the investors are going to look at, um, especially in med tech. You can expect that your the investors going to look uh, have a really hard look at your uh, your CTO as well, um, and then depending on on the company, if you have a, a clinical person on the team as well, those are the 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 three people: the CEO, the CTO, and whoever's on clinical uh, that that are going to get let's say roasted in the due diligence uh, just again and again and again. You're going to have to lean uh, particularly on that CTO quite a bit as a CEO. Yeah, those those are uh, those are fantastic thoughts, and I just to circle back around to your your comment around size of market too, right? Um, I one hundred percent agree about about the uh, the importance of the team, but um, when you're thinking about size of market too, and what that investor is going to expect in terms of returns, just keep in mind if you're raising money at say, let's say you're raising a, a Series A, right? At a just for rounding purposes, say a, a ten a ten million dollar pre money valuation. Just know that whatever dollars that are going going into that round, that investor is going to expect you know 10x type type of returns, you know 10x plus type of returns or, or more. You know that's sort of what's in, what's in their head. So just know in that scenario, you're going to have to set, you're going to have to. I mean your 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 acquisition just hit 100 million dollars in that uh, in that Series A in that example. So just just kind of know what you're what you're getting into, you know, um, and and what investors are expecting in terms of return. I think that's a 
that's a good point that you called out, um, Giovanni. So on, on that note, let's jump to let's jump to kind of the the, the next topic. That's sort of uh, while we're sitting on this this side of the uh, the table, so to speak, which is basically how to how to identify the right partners and then what that outreach should look like. That outreach and maybe pitch should should look like. So uh, I'm not sure who wants to kind of tackle ta tackle this, you know, Aaron or or, or Giovanni, but um, this obviously fit, fits into fits into what what you guys have been doing with MedTech Money over the past uh, over the past year or so. So. Uh, yeah, I'll give I'll give a quick shot. So this this is one of the reasons we started MedTech Money. Um, it's all about making the journey of fundraising for entrepreneurs a little bit easier. Uh, I think one, particularly you know, if it's a first time entrepreneur, um, even if it's a, an experienced entrepreneur, you have an idea of let's say a few investment firms that are uh, lined up perfectly with your with your offering, uh, but. Once you've reached out to those folks and, and tapped out your network, uh, then, then you're in a, uh, this land of, of sort of unknown unknowns where how do I know who's the, the right person to reach out to? Oftentimes on like a VC's website, they'll uh, be pretty high level in, in terms of what they invest in and what they're looking for. But then if you, if you dig in deeper, they've invested in opportunities similar to your company in the past. And so there, there may be a team member on the team that specializes in the, the type of company that you have that could be a good fit. So I think you know, part of it is knowing not just the, the VC firm and, and what, what they say they like to do, but knowing the partners as well. I think uh, it's one, one of the trends I've seen is sort of uh, partners kind of becoming their own individual influencer within the VC uh, for their specific specialty or skill set. And getting to know that takes, takes a lot of time, takes a lot of effort. When we started MedTech Money, we had a, you know, a small network of investors and VCs uh, that we knew going into it, uh, but have spent a year just doing research and networking and reaching out to folks and uh, getting them on the clubhouse and, and chatting and learning their motivations. So I hope that starts to get into the, the question a little bit. It, it's, it's, you know, helping to peel back the, the onion by really what MedTech Money does is provide that uh, curated information that's relevant to uh, an entrepreneur saying, you know, you have this particular uh, specialty or field that you're working in. You've got this offering or round size uh, at this stage that you're going after. Here's like the the top, you know, 50 VCs that you should be reaching out to. And that turns a, a search from, you know, a Google search where you can pull up a thousand names. You don't know if they're the right ones down to, okay, here's a list now that I can I can reach out to and have a much better chance of, of getting a positive response. So just to, just to recap, that was basically the no no kind of the, the markets or verticals that 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 VC invests in, right? Whether it's cardiovascular, orthopedics, maybe it's biotech, maybe it's you know digital health, whatever. Um, so so understand that, um, and then understand the the people with the goal of identifying kind of your your deal champion, right? Um, in, internally, yeah. am I kind of summarizing that? Yeah, I think that's a good a good summary. And on that note, um, I know, um, I know, and I'm not sure if you, if, if you guys are still providing this um, uh, through kind of the, the MedTech Money platform, but you 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 guys have curated like a a incredible uh, database. I remember a, a LinkedIn post, um, gosh, I don't know, six months ago that has like whatever thousands thousands of comments uh, around people wanting access to this this list of of investors. Is that something that you guys are still offering, or how, how do people go about? Uh, you know, getting, getting access to that uh, vetted list. That was a huge learning lesson for us as well. So, and, and it tailored, I guess, why we're even on this show right now talking about it. And um, so 
what we wanted to compile was a list of investors that had a focus or at least at a minimum has done a deal within medtech so that medtech entrepreneurs raising money at least who knew or who um, knew who would be in the game of, of at least looking at their technology and that's why that list continued to grow and get exponentially longer um, and then anecdotally from both aaron and my side when we have heard feedback months and months later from some of these investors they're like listen those those long lists were great it's great that you compiled them but there's no way that I can work through a list of 1800 or 2500 or 4000 or even a thousand um, you know how do I reach out and, and that was at least for me a major aha over the past year as to how to go about that and, and I have a few experiences that I'd like to share for anyone who's listening and, and raising capital so it, it's not enough to even identify the right investor. It's certainly hard enough to identify the right investor, but then you have to take it and then a next step further, which is the timing. And you have to be aware of where those investors are within the life cycle of their fund. And great example, I just had an investor who's actually a close friend of mine reach out probably about a week or a few days ago giving me a total update on the fund that they're running with right now. And, and I have steered a lot of startups his way. And he said, you know, thanks for steering these towards us, but I wanted to give you an update on our fund. We likely have only one or two more spots left for new investments. And we are starting to close out the fund because we need reserves for already the investments that we made. And we're going to start raising the next fund. But I wanted you to be aware for any other startups that you send our way, that even though if they're an attractive opportunity for us to invest in, we might not be able to do that. So it's not enough to only identify the right investor. You also have to identify the right investor at the right time. And so a few points that we've learned and that were made salient on our clubhouse discussions are there is no silver bullet because it's not, like I said, it's not enough to just identify the right investor. You have to find them at the right time. Um, you also, when you do this outreach, and this is where getting away from those lists of a thousand investors, taking your copy and paste email and sending it a thousand different times and hoping for the best, you know, it's like gambling and, and you know, throwing it on red or black at a casino. You might get something back, but it would be luck and happenstance. Um, these investors want to know that when you reach out, that you've done your homework and there's a reason for why you're reaching out. You know their investment philosophy. You know that they invest in that style of technology because reaching out to an investor who only invests in growth state capital and you're looking for a $10 million Series A, it's very clear that you haven't understood what their philosophy is or looked at their portfolio of investments or the size of the investments that they have made. And so when you're looking at potential investors, a huge key component is what's the size of the fund that they closed? If they have a $500 million fund, they're not going to typically participate in a Series A where they're going to contribute $2 million. It's not valuable enough for the investor to contribute that because they're not going to get the return on that money or even the time that it takes. It's just going to be too much work. So typically when you see those larger funds, they invest in larger rounds. And the smaller the fund, the smaller the round that they typically invest in. So th that's a, another good metric to look at. But then it gets even more confusing because in our time of interviewing investors and understanding their thesis and their philosophy of how they invest, 
there's always these exceptions, which then makes it even more frustrating. I, I was on the phone a week or so ago with another investor that typically invests in right before regulatory approval or very early stage commercialization of a product. And when you go through their portfolio, it makes sense as to that. And their portfolio speaks to that philosophy. But then they say, well, if you come across a company that looks like this, this, and this, and it might be earlier, don't be hesitant to send them our way. Um, because we do have this one company that even though we are really more of a regulatory approving commercial stage company, we have made an investment in a company that was going into first in man and, and didn't even have clinical data yet. And, and so they have these general philosophies, but I typically more often than not conclude a conversation with an investor saying, we want to look at everything. We want to take a look at everything, but there is this strong backbone of to what they typically invest in, which once again makes it confusing. So it leads to the final point that I wanted to make that I learned and wanted to ask a lot more questions about to our panelists on Clubhouse, that how do you manage relationships with the right investors? So if you go out and you're a medical device company and, and you find you know the top 50 firms that you should be in contact with, some of them might be a little bit later stage than where you currently are right now, but how do you appropriately reach out to them and then knowing that they're not going to invest in you now, make sure that you constantly stay on their radar, constantly update them once a quarter or once every other month. And we've had investors on our panel say, we want that. Just because we can't invest today doesn't mean we don't want to know what's happening. We want over communication so that we can keep you in our in our thoughts, in our mind, in our pipeline. Um, so th there's a way of methodically knowing who you should be reaching out to, who you shouldn't be reaching out to. But then at the same time, knowing that there is no silver bullet and it's all about timing and also how you manage the relationship moving forward to stay in contact and update the investors who may invest in you in the future. Hey there, it's Scott, and thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.